And so we'll be reading together Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. And last week we spent some time studying how, what Proverbs teaches us about money. We saw how the sages of the book employ us to treat money as God intended, a benefit and a blessing of hard work, a resource for meeting needs, both our own and others' needs. We saw how money can entice us to set our hearts upon it. But if we are wise, we are not those who set our hearts on the pursuit of money. Rather, we are wise when we pursue the Lord and trust Him with whatever He gives us. So if money is a potential identity pitfall, which we saw last week, it is, work is an equal temptation. Many people, probably people you know and can think about even now, determine their self-worth their value, even who they are as a person based on what they do as a career. And this so often leads to heartache, dissatisfaction, and ultimately becoming disillusioned. Because we are given the gift of work. We are given satisfaction in the work that we do, but the people of God are never fully defined by the labor of their hands, but of the love of their God. Wisdom beckons us to find our identity as God's people, as His children. Wisdom warns us of the danger of finding our identity and our worth in our work or anything other than the Lord. So this week, similarly, we're going to be considering, considering work wisdom. How would God have us live wisely in our work? How do we develop skill in the art of godly living in everywhere the Lord places us to do work? Those are the questions we're going to seek to explore together this morning, beginning by hearing a direct, even strident word from Solomon. So let's read Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant. O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep? A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the more interesting transitions for me when I moved from rural Georgia to northern Virginia were the strange conversations that constantly took place about people's occupations. And maybe you, you kind of know where I'm going with this. One of the most natural questions for the vast majority of people that I've ever talked to is to ask them, what do you do for a living? What their job is. Oh, I teach second grade at the elementary school, or I'm a veterinarian, or I work over at the bank as a loan officer. Yet here, many times over, I would ask that question, and I got a one-sentence 
answer that is a bit of a conversation challenge. What do you do for a living? I work for the government. Oh, really? What do you do for the government? That's it, right? Like, like it leads to the, to the blank stare that says, oh, you, you must, how cute, you must be new here. Yet many times I would realize, and the person would be kind, and, and give some comment kind of, I can't talk about that. Or it's classified. I, I, you fill in the blank. Just basically, we're not going here, here and no further in this conversation. And at first, I, I just didn't know what to do with the exchange, uh, but I've actually come to like it a bit more and more when it happens. When you have a conversation stopper like that or something that kind of challenges you, you have to redirect to something else or stand awkwardly looking at each other till one of you walks away. Like, that's, that's your option. And so there's, there's a good and a bad reason, I think, for that awkwardness that maybe you felt in this conversation. The bad reason, I think, is this, what we've already been warned of is that I think we most naturally are prone to identify who we are with what we do as a career. And when we can't talk about what we do, we can feel a bit disoriented or at a loss to dig up some other topic to talk about. I actually think the good reason for the awkwardness is the same because it forces us in in a brief moment of conversation to think beyond what we do to consider who we are, to think not just, think, to think of who we are beyond what we do to earn a wage. You see, for many people, the concept of work has to do with what a person does for a vocation or a job to earn a paycheck. And I think we are often tending towards limiting our understanding of work to that narrow definition, to occupation, or at least occupation becomes our primary category of what we think about when we talk about work. But the biblical understanding, friends, hear me, is the biblical understanding of work is not so narrow. If God equated work with a job, then many people who work diligently but do not receive a paycheck would be unable to apply the wisdom of Proverbs. Remember the godly woman of Proverbs 31? We are not told in any of it that she has a career path. And yet her days are filled with meaningful work. And beloved, even our Lord Jesus, who was a trained carpenter, did not, to our knowledge, during his ministry, use that skill to earn a wage. But I don't think any person here among us would dare call him lazy or blaspheme Jesus by saying he didn't work because he didn't get a paycheck. So it seems, I I think, that we need to have a broader understanding of work in order that we might apply the wisdom of God to all of our lives, not simply the nine to five. We ought to consider that work does include what we do, that which we may do to earn wages, but there is much work that we engage in that does not directly bring about monetary return. We work in Bible study. We work to disciple our children. We work to maintain our homes. We work on and in relationships. We work when we do good to our friends and neighbors. We work as we serve one another in a local church 
Now, I don't want, don't want, don't hear this mistake. I'm not trying to flatten out work so thin that everything is work, but rather I want you to see that the wisdom of God applied to work enlivens more than just whatever job you have for a given season. And I think the text we just read holds a central reality that Solomon would have us grasp when it comes to work. And he uses one of the most common basic creatures, the ant. The ant is portrayed in these verses, even personified in these verses, as a diligent, industrious worker displaying wisdom as she goes about her task. But it's not a complimentary picture, right? We are exhorted, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Think about that that statement. Think about that. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Here's what I mean. Shouldn't creation be able to look at we who are made in the image of God and take their cues about what work looks like from us? Shouldn't the lesser creatures of earth be able to look upon humanity and be instructed by our wise ways? But this isn't the case. No, because we have so often abandoned wisdom with our work and so embraced the sin of laziness or sluggishness or overwork, we who are made in the image of God have to be told to look at an insect to gain wisdom from them. But notice the exhortation. Hear this, friends. The exhortation isn't simply, do more, work really hard, work harder. But rather, did you notice what he says? Go to the ant of sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Observe and gain wisdom. There's something about the way the ant works that is a demonstration of God's own wisdom for how we ought to work. And this exhortation exposes what the primary threat to wisdom and work is, namely laziness. The sluggard is a character who appears all throughout the book of Proverbs. The slothful one shows up time and time again. And the Proverbs often employ what is called antithetical parallelism, which is a big word. You can go home and Impress your mom or dad and say, you know, I was thinking about some antithetical parallelism this afternoon, and I was wanting to share that with you. But to teach you what it is, it's where one line stresses value and blessing, while the other line shows the danger of folly. So one line provides the thesis and the other line the antithesis. And it's common throughout the the picture of of work and laziness in in Proverbs to use this type of parallelism. And the place I want to start will will come as no surprise to any of you who have heard any of these sermons on wisdom yet. I want to start this morning with an example of how wise work or foolish laziness begins before we actually do anything. Begins in the heart. Listen to Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard, craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. I mean, did you catch that? It's the soul of the sluggard that has a craving. 
It's a desire. It's a good desire. If you notice, the desire of the sluggard is to enjoy fruitfulness, but the competing desire to be lazy chokes out and drives out the desire to work. On the other hand, the, the sage tells us the soul of the diligent enjoys supply. He's enjoying the fruit that the sluggard wants. Why? Because he is diligent, because his desire motivates meaningful labor. There is an inward pull toward laziness, laziness that if we gratify it ends only in emptiness. But likewise, we're told here that there's an inward pull to diligence that if we gratify that and train that muscle, it actually leads to satisfaction. And these principles are not new to the Proverbs either. This idea that that work is a blessing and laziness is a danger. But also the reality that there is a temptation. We, We know that this principle is built on previous revelation. Both the blessing and the frustration of work are laid out very early in in the Bible. Even at the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 2, we see God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden with a purpose. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam was given work and a responsibility as a blessing from his maker. He is charged with cultivating the garden that the Lord had planted for him. The Lord had given Adam good work to do. But we also know from Genesis 3 that one of the great losses sin has brought into the world was the cursing of work. So the Lord speaks to Adam in Genesis 3.19. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. Into dust you shall return. Adam's work, his labor, would be frustrated. Just a few verses prior, we're told that, that he will work the ground, but it will produce thorns and thistles. It'll produce unhealthy growth because of the sin that has entered into creation. And indirectly, this curse obviously affects Eve as well as it affects every human who's existed. Work as a gift given by God was marred by sin such that difficulty will accompany the work we do. And one of the first difficulties is our temptation to not want to do it. So again, we are reminded that the world is broken. And even we are broken. And so our approach to work is often broken. But we serve a God who restores our brokenness and actually invites us into the blessing of meaningful work that shuns laziness, that satisfies our hearts, and blesses others. So with the rest of our time, I just want to draw out three principles from Proverbs that we can apply to our work to gain skill in the art of godly living when it comes to the labor of our hands. So here's the first one. First, wise work is planned work. Wise work is planned work. When we enter upon a task, any task, having a plan is beneficial. The time you spend to plan the work you will do is not time wasted, but it actually serves to enhance the work that you are engaged in. Consider Proverbs 21 verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty 
comes only to poverty. So what, notice the picture there. The diligent worker doesn't simply just jump into a task or a project with act, without actually considering, how can I do this well? The wise worker considers the task before him to the best of his ability. He measures his resources of time and strength and what materials will be required to accomplish the labor he is found to do which is contrasted with the hasty worker, who's actually just another version of the sluggard. Here's what I mean. The sluggard can't be bothered with coming up with a plan. That just takes too much time. He's saying, let me just get the job done because the best work is work that's finished so I can go back to doing nothing. This is why the hasty worker is so often poor in the Proverbs. Because cutting corners in the plan results in poor execution and ultimately bad results or even just leaving work incomplete. That's how the hasty worker ends up in poverty because nobody wants the fruit of their labor because there is no fruit in their labor. No one wants to hire them for their work because they're hasty. And that word hasty in this verse brings the weight of rushing or being hurried. Being in a hurry in our work does not reveal wisdom. It actually reveals foolishness, our lack of wise planning. So so let me ask you this. Do you approach your tasks, the things the Lord has called you to do, in a hurried and unplanned fashion? There could be multiple reasons that this happens in your heart. But is it a lack of diligent planning? Some of us may be tempted by and guilty of laziness that simply doesn't do good work. But I actually think there's another problem here. I wonder if some of us fall victim to this foolishness of not being able to plan our work because we say yes to too much. Sometimes our lack of planning in our work is because we say yes to every task presented to us. Because we fear man more than we fear the Lord. We crave the approval of man so we don't learn to measure our lives and only agree to what we can actually faithfully do. We we so hate disappointing people or the disapproving stare of our fellow man, so we're hasty to say yes to any request. We act hastily, which ends in poverty. Certainly the sage here in this couplet has in view a poverty of material resources. And yet, poverty can come on us not only in our finances, but in our energy, in our vitality, or our endurance. Burnout easily captures the one who hastily says yes to everything instead of being diligent to plan their work in accordance with what the Lord has given them. When we're intentional with our work, we accomplish work in wisdom. And we actually look like our Lord Jesus who said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I 
have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father planned with the Son and the Spirit and then sent the Son to accomplish the work he had planned for him to do. Jesus did not hastily leave heaven or haphazardly descend to save his people. No, the eternal plans of the triune God were accomplished in Jesus' marvelous work. The Lord Jesus executed the plan of salvation's design given to him by the Father and the Spirit applies the glorious work of Christ to our hearts, giving us life. The greatest planned work will echo through eternity and will praise the wisdom of God. The gospel work of Jesus in planning and execution and accomplishing reshapes the way that we think about the work we are given as we look to the Savior who wisely accomplished all that the Father had sent him to do. Wise work is planned work. There's a second principle we're given. Wise work is diligent work. Wise work is diligent work. When we are wise in our planning, we follow that with wisdom when we work diligently. The quote-unquote diligent worker in Proverbs is one who demonstrates care and perseverance and endurance in completing tasks. The wise person is not one who leaves work unfinished, incomplete, undone. We see how this this builds on the first principle. Don't you see that? Without a clear plan, even the most diligent worker may end up in frustration, may end up in weariness and inability. Yet when a task is planned wisely, it can be carried out with diligence. So consider Proverbs 10.4, which says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, a contrasting parallel. The slack hand or the one who is lazy, the sluggard, one who's, is, is one whose foolishness causes poverty, whereas the one who is diligent is prosperous. If we would work wisely, we must work diligently. Now, I want to take just a, a step aside here and remind us of a key principle in interpreting the Proverbs. This is a reality we visited early on and we come back to you time to time. Proverbs gives us general principles, not binding promises. There are many diligent workers who will never be rich in this life. But does that mean that this principle is false or null and void? I mean, just because lazy people get rich and hard workers do not, should we question the truthfulness of God's word? No. We should interpret it wisely. We're reminded by the proverb writer and by our own hearts in the world that we live in a broken world where sin still has so infected the world that all of her systems are tainted. So Proverbs aren't meant to be promises that if you work really, really hard, you're going to get really, really rich. That's not what it's saying. But in the normal cause-effect relationship of the world, those who work hard are those who are able to make, make money and to prosper. So remember, it's a principle, not a promise. 
Because we know that this side of heaven, the world in which we live will remain broken until Jesus comes to bring the new heavens and the new earth. But we are given guidance on how we might live as citizens of this coming king by working diligently in all the tasks we have been given to set our hands to. And and again, I think we see the greatest example of this in our Lord Jesus, the wisest one who ever lived, as he responded to angry Pharisees who questioned him, how can you do this on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. The motivation Jesus had for work was his heavenly father. We look to our heavenly father and to his son and see one whose work was always diligent and who certainly persevered and who certainly completed the task. I mean, even as he talked about the the things that the Lord had called him to do, the work that the Lord called called him to do, he compared doing the work that God had called him to to being his very food in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. <clears throat> do not say there are yet four months and then comes a the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus worked wisely. It was his very food to do the will of the Father. He works with diligence, and did you notice he invites us into the greatest work that we could ever imagine? We are called into the work of spreading the love of Christ revealed in the gospel of our salvation. Yes, the Lord gives you meaningful labor and work to do with your hands. You will likely work for the majority of your life in an occupation. And yet, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the deeper and more rewarding work that you have been called and sent to do is the work of spreading the love of Christ. There is no work that we should be more diligent about than the work that the Lord Jesus has called into this glorious privilege we have received. And consider that he says, there's a guarantee. This work will be fruitful, not frustrated. I mean, think about this. There are so many things that we spend our time on, our energy on, and our resources on that are going to perish at the return of Christ or simply when we die. Yet there is a work that has been given to every one of the disciples, all, every one of us who follows Jesus, every follower of Jesus, that we have been given to, that will echo throughout eternity. It's the labor to reap the harvest of the gospel by sharing the good news with those the Lord has placed in our lives. Friends, I want to encourage you. Yes, be diligent in all of life's work. That is what wisdom, how wisdom is displayed. But let us be diligent in doing the work that is most important, spreading Christ. Diligence demonstrates the character and wisdom of God. And if we would work wisely, we must labor with diligence, certainly to do the things that the Lord has called us to in our occupations, in our vocations, in our homes, but so much more than that. 
to be diligent in gospeling the world in which the Lord has placed us. There's a third principle as well. Wise work is skillful work. Wise work is skillful work. So let's, let's kind of keep building these stairs, as it were. Doing work that is planned and diligent, but without skill, ends in what? Again, frustration and unsatisfying work. So we're presented in the Proverbs with the praise of skillful work, not just planned hard work. But what does that mean? What, what, what does it mean to be skillful? Well, simply this, to do a good job means knowing how to do the job properly. It means learning the ways of accomplishing, accomplishing tasks that actually do the task well. I don't know if you're like me, but I want to do everything right the very first time with no learning curve. So I can remember when I made the transition from a Windows computer to an Apple computer. And I spent 30 days contemplating how I might, with great joy and abundant happiness, destroy this new object that I'd spent all of my tax return on. Because I didn't know how to do anything I couldn't find my email. I, couldn't, there were, I was using fingers in weird ways on the little trackpad that I'd never done before. There was no such thing as a right click. I could not figure out at all what to do. But my wife, who was patient and kind, but also desired to throw the laptop out the window, said, let's not waste these resources. Let's learn the skill of how to use this system. Now it's funny because if someone hands me a Windows computer, I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with my hands. You have to develop skill with how to accomplish basic tasks. So skill is learning how to do things and do the task well. It is becoming skillful. And when you arrive at this, this skillful, you, you develop these skills. We're actually given a, an amazing picture in Proverbs 22, verse 29. We read this. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Developing skill and then working skillfully, are you you noticing what happens? Actually builds reputation for the worker. The sage says that the skilled worker will stand before kings and not obscure men. The picture is that one who does their work diligently, plans and with skill, develops a credibility that leads people to desire to see the work of their hands. So on a couple occasions, I've actually visited the National Gallery of Art. Maybe you you have too in D.C. And I am not an art critic. I'm not even an art appreciator. I don't get it. And I'm not certainly not an art historian. I can't tell you the difference between a Monet and a Van Gogh. I don't even know if those are really artists. Those are just names I wrote in my manuscript that I think are painters. Yet what I did appreciate at every visit was the tremendous skill on display in the paintings and the sculptures, many of which were were more than 100 years old. The skill of the brush strokes, the use of color and light and dark is beautiful. The fascinating aspect as I was thinking about this proverb was that the ones who painted such treasures 
may have seen some, but did not live to see how their work lives on. And they are actually standing in front of many influential people through the skillful work that they accomplished with oil and canvas. In order for us to be skillful at our jobs or in our homes or wherever work requires, wherever work is required, it will be preceded, if it's going to be wise, with learning. That's been the repeated exhortation of Proverbs over and over. How many times did we hear, my son, listen to my teaching. Remember my instruction. Take my word to your heart, son. And apply the, God, the instruction and the commandments of God to your mind and your heart. They will be a graceful garland around your neck. The learning of God's instruction enables the living in God's ways, living of God's ways. If, if we are learning how we ought to live, then we develop skill in the art of godly living. And that principle comes through in our work, does it not? Doing a job without skills to actually accomplish the task never results in good, satisfying work. In fact, it can be extremely costly. Chad Hill has at times allowed me to work in his home carpentry shop. Most of you know he's a skilled carpenter by trade. So his, his shop is filled with many tools that are sharp. In the hands of a skilled laborer, those tools are used to fashion beautiful creations from wood. But in the hands of an unskilled worker, you may just lose your hands. It can be costly to engage with work without having skill. Wise work then is accomplished with skill that is developed over time. And that development of skill is not simply what you have devoted yourself to, It's often something that God has given you some resource in. So maybe you remember the names Bezalel and Aholiab from Exodus. Their inclusion in the tabernacle building narrative is a great example of what I'm trying to get at here. So Exodus 36, verses 1 through 3, this is what we read. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. I I mean, those verses may seem innocuous, on service level, but they they apply directly to what we're talking about. These men and many other craftsmen of Israel were skilled in mind and able to work, and they were stirred up to do the work by God. I I love this picture so much because I think sometimes Christians can think of their work in categories of spiritual and unspiritual. these, These are the Christian works that I do, and these are the worldly works that I do. Friends, I think the Proverbs would implore us not to think of any aspect of our lives as detached from God. If you have developed skill in the work you have before you, you didn't do that on your own. Everything you have is from the Lord. And you've been given that skill to use for His glory by giving Him thanks for enabling you to have the skills you have. Then, as you work, work, yes, to bless others, but also see fundamentally that your work, your labor, is a means for honoring the Lord in the skillful work you do, which brings great satisfaction. 
I mean, Paul highlights the same reality, which Caleb prayed for us earlier in Colossians 3. He writes this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are, are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Look at this last sentence. You are serving the Lord Christ. The audience of the diligent, skilled worker is the Lord Christ. Is this not standing before a king? Jesus is no obscure man. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he sees the work that you do day in and day out. So do it skillfully as unto him and find joy that he is satisfied in the work that you are doing. Living and working wisely in a broken world follows the example of the one who accomplished the greatest work ever, the salvation of sinners. Do we not see the skillful work in Jesus, whose study of the law confounded the most brilliant religious scholars of his day? Do we not see skillful work in the way Jesus used simple stories to, comp- to proclaim gloriously deep truths? Do we not see skillful work in Jesus, who labored hard in the carpenter's shop and then as a homeless preacher, yet took rest when he needed to assure he could accomplish the task he was sent to accomplish? Do we not see skillful work in our Lord Jesus? We do. We do have much work to do and much work before us. And yet, beloved, in all of this, the greatest work that we need is one we could never accomplish. And because of Jesus, we don't have to work it. I think some of you might even be trapped in thinking that the work you most need to do is earn God's affection or his acceptance. Maybe right now this morning you think you need to work harder at being better at your work so that God will love you. Friend, hear me. Your salvation is not a work you do. It is a work completed by Jesus who hung upon the cross and declared, it is finished. The glorious work accomplished by Jesus is a completed work that he offers to sinners who will take hold of him by faith. So have you trusted Jesus? Or are you caught up in a cycle of working furiously to try and save yourself, to clean yourself up, to try to tip the scales a little bit more so you can earn heaven from God? The good news for you today is that that work has been accomplished. You cannot work hard enough at life to receive salvation from Jesus. You cannot do enough to outweigh your sin. The good news for you is you have a Savior who has come and accomplished all the work that you cannot do so you might rest in His glorious finished work. Will you repent of your sin and trust this Savior today? Will you stop the cycle of self-salvation and rest in Christ? That is freedom He gives. And the Savior who wisely worked to redeem us, sets us free on the basis of his finished work to labor in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our world, because we're no longer pining for the approval of man or even seeking the approval of God with what we do, but because we already have it, we can work freely, knowing that the Lord is accomplishing his good work in us. We demonstrate our faith in Christ with how we work. So, 
as the author of Hebrews says, let's stir up one another to what? Love and good deeds or good works so that our work might display the matchless love of Christ. 